Hear the word of God from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. This reading comes from the New Revised Standard Version. You can find this reading on page 862 in the Pew Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, I'd like to offer my own word of greeting and welcome and Merry Christmas to all of you. As Vicki shared earlier in the service, you all had a lot of options tonight. You had a lot of different ways that you could observe Christmas with your family and certainly a lot of churches to choose from. And the fact that you have chosen this place and chosen to observe Christmas in the context of Christian worship is a very sacred and holy privilege that we as clergy and staff hold very dear. So thank you for entrusting your Christmas to us. And uh, in the words of a particular young worshiper out there, yay! <laughs> as Mary was reading the text from John's Gospel, the thought came to my mind that I would make a lousy gospel writer. It's hard enough to be a sermon writer. The only thing harder than being a sermon writer is being a sermon listener. <laughs> Amen, Vicky says. All right. <laughs> no matter who the preacher is, no matter how great they might be or how great that preacher thinks they are, every single sermon, every single preacher begins writing a sermon the very same way with a blank page, a blank screen, and then what ensues are hours and hours, sometimes days, sometimes even weeks that feel like years of that preacher beginning a wrestling match, trying to corral and trying to harness the great and deep profound truths of God's love and trying to massage them in some kind of coherent, some kind of relevant way. We preachers don't always succeed. 
You know that. You've heard some bad ones in the past. And I'm not going to lie, I've offered a few of those myself. Despite all of the wrestling and the sparring that we do as preachers, sometimes even bruising and bleeding when it comes to writing these sermons, sometimes it just doesn't always work. So now I can imagine John, the gospel writer, at first, with a completely blank parchment and thinking to himself, how in the world am I going to write This gospel, how am I going to capture with just the right language the depth and the mystery of this incredible event called the Incarnation? How am I going to describe with words the arrival of Jesus Christ? I suspect he did some wrestling too. We don't know how much wrestling he did, but we sure do know how it ended up. It ended up with the passage that Mary just read for us. 14 verses. That's all it is. But it happens to be 14 of the most glorious, most poetic, most artistic verses in the entire Bible. No other introduction to any other book in the Bible has as much flourish and pageantry and beauty as the first 14 verses of John's Gospel. And just to underscore... Just how epic a story John is preparing to tell us. He begins these 14 verses with three very familiar words. John, being a preacher, is certainly not above borrowing another preacher's lines. And so he borrows a pretty good one from the author of Genesis. He begins his gospel with the very same three words. In the beginning. Way back when, at the beginning of the Hebrew Bible, way back in the beginning of time, John is saying, I'm about to tell you a story that this world has never seen since the very beginning of time, and it's never going to see this again. That's how profound this is. What I'm about to tell you is so world-shaking, so universally transformative, that the world has never seen anything like it since the beginning. And then he goes on. In the beginning was the Word. The Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And later he says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. i got to say, in 18 years of ministry, with hundreds and hundreds of sermons under my belt, I have never written anything as beautiful as that. Never written anything as poetic and powerful and artistic as what John was able to accomplish in these 14 verses. But you know what? John would be the first to admit that despite all the glorious language that he was able to come up with, it was still nothing. It was still nothing compared to the greatest sermon ever preached. The sermon that God preached on that very first Christmas day when God shared a word. And that word was Jesus. And God delivered that word with more verbal artistry, with such great delivery from the ultimate divine wordsmith. John says Jesus was the word. 
And so John tried to find words to describe that word. And so here I am as a preacher trying to find the words to talk about John's words that describe the word made flesh. Are you confused yet? Well, you should be. Because there's not a lot about this that makes a whole lot of sense, frankly. Danish Christian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said that at some level, it would have made much more sense if God had chosen to appear as a, quote, very rare and tremendously large green bird. Because that is something that a God who is outside our realm of understanding would do. That is something that a God who liked to surprise humanity, who does something surprising and supernatural would do. But instead, God showed up as a word. A word made flesh. A human being, just like us. The same kind of Mostly water, carbon-based, muscle and sinew, sweating and crying kind of mortal human being. And what's more, Jesus was not just a human being. Jesus was an utterly ordinary human being. Just like us. A homeless rabbi. An immigrant. A refugee. A nomadic wanderer. A man who, as Bishop Will Willimon described him, quote, looked suspiciously like the annoying guy next door. An undeniably human person who hungered and thirsted and rejoiced and suffered and raged and wept and died as all persons do. Completely ordinary. And that's what makes this particular word so compelling. Jesus wasn't just a spoken word by God. Jesus was an embodied word by God. A word that took on muscle and flesh and breathed our air and walked our earth. A word that lived among us. A word in a body. And you know, I suppose that's, that's what makes the task of preaching so difficult. For preachers like me. Because it's not just about finding the right words to say. If only it were that. That part is difficult enough. Just staring at a blank screen trying to find the right words. It's the whole embodiment part that makes it that much tougher. Because once my manuscript is done, I still have to deliver it. And I have to deliver it with my body. I've got to stand in a pulpit and try not to fidget too much. And I've got to stand with correct posture. And I've got to look out at people and try not to be freaked out by the hundreds of eyeballs all staring back at me. And I've got to keep from sweating too much. And I've got to keep from my hand gestures being too distracting. And I've, I've got to stand with a confident posture. It doesn't matter what I say. I have to embody that word so that people can receive it. But that's still nothing compared to the embodiment that's involved in listening to a sermon. Because every time you listen to a sermon, it's a physical act too. You have to sit there, still, not moving, in uncomfortable hard pews. 
And you've got to sit there with focused attention and not let your mind wander. And you've got to keep yourself present in the moment and not wonder how long this incredibly dry sermon is going to take. And you hope beyond hope that you turned off the stove before you came to the church. And you hope that the service is done in an hour so you can meet your reservation with your family at the restaurant. And you, and you, you are wondering how the bucks are doing. <laughs> Which, okay, by the way, it is two minutes left in the second quarter. The Saints are up 10-7, all right? Now come back to me. Come back to me right here. Right here. <laughs> By the way, I have to say, the Bucks scored their touchdown while Vicky was praying. So I don't know what that means. But... I'm sure you'd rather have her come up and pray some more. <laughs> Listening to a sermon's a physical act. But that's still nothing compared to what happens after the sermon is done. Because sermons that are compelling, sermons that really stick, the embodiment part is just beginning. Because then you have to take those words that God has given you, and you've got to do something with it, with your actions. The most compelling sermons are the ones that cause you to change your behavior, that change you to alter the way you see the world, that change the way you relate to other people. It might even flip conventional wisdom upside down and it might make you do things you'd rather not do and refrain things that you would rather do. Compelling sermons are words that you receive that call you to make into flesh through your own behavior and to make them real. Maybe, maybe that's why after John is done with these 14 verses, this wonderful, poetic, artistic flourish of 14 verses, he never goes back to that writing style again for the rest of his gospel. You ever notice that? After he's done with this grand epic opening, John resorts to a writing style that, let's just face it, is just boring old prose. No more poetry, just prose. And what does he do with that prose? Well, John starts to tell stories. Stories like the time that Jesus met a blind man. And after healing that blind man and giving him sight, Jesus said, I and the light of the world. Jesus took the word light and he embodied it through his healing. Oh, and then Jesus saw a hungry, starving crowd on a hill. And after Jesus fed them and satisfied their hunger, Jesus said the words, I am the bread of life. He took those words and he embodied it for the healing of others. And then one time he was talking to his friends, Mary and Martha, who were mourning because their dear friend Lazarus had died. And when Jesus took Lazarus and called him forth and raised him back to life, Jesus said the words, I am the resurrection and I am life. Jesus took those words and he embodied it and he brought new hope and possibility where there was only death. You see, over and over and over again, 
The thing that these stories all have in common is that these aren't just words that Jesus used to describe himself. They are embodied words. They are fleshy words. They are muscular words in which he takes his own life and he takes his own body and he lays it down so that other people who are walking in darkness, who are blind and are hungry and are in the wake of death, can find new life. And that's why. That's why with all the names that we use to describe Jesus this time of year, the best one of all is the word Emmanuel, which means God is with us. It means that this Jesus was not just a spoken word, but a word that became flesh in order to be with you. And you know what that means? It means that if you are in the midst of your own blindness or hungering like those crowds or in the wake of your own death or the death of a loved one or you're thirsty like the Samaritan woman, then this Jesus comes to be with you, to be your light, to be your bread, to be your living water, to be your resurrection, to be your life. And what that means is that no matter what you are going through, God is with you. No matter what suffering you may be enduring, God is with you. No matter what questions you might have about what tomorrow holds, God is with you. No matter how fearful you are about the conditions of this world or frightened you might be about its future, God is with you. No matter how lonely or isolated you might feel, no matter what kind of mental anguish you've been carrying, no matter how shady your past has been, God is with you. You know what that means? It means that if God chose to be with us in Jesus, then we have the very same calling to be with others. That if Jesus came to us in order to give us new life and new hope, we are also called to be with other people. Because we are also responsible for the well-being of those who are suffering. We are responsible for the well-being of those who are hurting. We are the voice of the voiceless. We are the ones who can bring justice to the oppressed and the marginalized. We are the ones who can be responsible for tearing down walls that divide us among each other and divide us from God. We are the ones called to be in relationships with other people, not by just preaching at them, not just by showing words at them, but by being a word of hope with other people. In other words, taking God's love and making it real. One of my favorite theological professors is a woman named Marjorie Suhaki. I once heard her give a lecture several years ago, and I'll never forget the three points of her lecture. It stuck with me ever since. She said, there are three ways in which all of us are created in the image of God. Three ways that distinguish us from every other created being on the planet. You want to know what they are? She said, first of all, we are unique in the way we relate to the past. 
Only human beings have the consciousness, have the ability to remember the past with such vividness and clarity that we are able to recreate minute details of that past as if it were happening today. The first way we're created in the image of God is through memory that connects us to the past. Number two, she said we are divine in the way we can relate to the future. We're the only creatures that have our capacity to imagine a future that has not yet happened, to envision a tomorrow that is better than the one today, to begin to believe in new hope and new possibilities, to enable us to live into a future that has not yet been revealed. We are unique in the way we connect to the past and in the way we connect to the future. And then Suhaki said the third and final way is the divine way we can relate to the present. And she said, what is the divine way we can relate to the present? And she asked all of us in the room. A bunch of us tried some answers. None of them quite worked. She said, the way we uniquely and divinely relate to the present is through empathy. Human beings are the only ones who can step outside themselves and begin to assume the oppressiveness of their fellow brother or sister, who can dare to step out of their own journey, to set aside their own agenda for the benefit of compassionate and just acts of love, compassion and mercy for other people. We are the only ones that can identify fully with the needs of our fellow suffering human beings. And in fact, that is exactly what God did for us in Jesus, the ultimate empathetic act where the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And if this Jesus did that for us, we who are made in the image of God need to do that for other people. You know, it's interesting. Every Christmas we take a look at the first 14 verses of John. Tonight it was our text. We've taken a look at all 14 verses. You know what's interesting to do? To look at how the Gospel of John ends. How do you suppose this grand and majestic Gospel ends? Not with pomp, not with flourish, not with artistry, but with a simple, empathetic, relational, private conversation. An intimate exchange between two people. That's how the gospel ends. Just a chat between Peter and Jesus. And Jesus says to Peter, you've really only got one task, Peter. You've just got to empathize with other people. And the way he says it is, tend my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my flock. Jesus says to Peter, don't put your own agenda ahead of others. Empathize. Tear down the walls. Relate to other people. Do acts of compassion and justice and mercy in my name. Tend my sheep. Feed my lambs. Tend my flock. And this grand gospel that begins with 14 verses that I could never write if I ever tried ends with two simple words the last two words Jesus says in the gospel of John before he ascends into heaven 
follow me. He says that to the disciples. And now he says it to us. Follow me. There's your sermon. Now, it's up to you to make it flesh and to make it real. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Thank you, God, for not leaving us alone. And thank you, God, for calling us to a higher purpose in which we relate to the needs of those around us. Forgive us, Lord, for putting self ahead of others. You have given us so much hope through the coming of Jesus. And now you call us to be the hope by sharing that Jesus with others. Thank you for calling us to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.